Welcome to my den. This is going to be a strange episode today and I'm really looking forward to it because today I'm actually having my husband come on the show because in the shower this morning, I had an interesting thought come to mind and I was talking through it with my husband and he had some interesting perspectives as well. So I thought you might enjoy this banter between two native digitals about the outlook of therapy culture and essentially what this epidemic of loneliness is doing to my generation and how you as parents, as leaders, and just as people who care about the next generation can help us navigate this. So buckle your seatbelts. This is going to be an interesting ride. I have no clue where this, this journey is going to take us. So listen in. You're listening to Native Digital, Native Analog, the show where we unpack the collisions and commonalities between my generation and yours. I believe that if you don't have a Native Digital on your board of directors, your leadership team, or one that's paid to pester you like a fly in your ear, your business won't survive. Let's change that today. So I was reading an article this morning from the New York Times from an editor, and it was called, If Everything is Trauma, What Is? And it brought up the idea that as a society, we seem to have come to a point where if you don't have your own trauma, then you can't be recognized as a person. Yeah. No, I I hadn't really thought about it from that perspective before, but that is that is so true. Like TikTok. I mean, it seems like every other video that I see on TikTok is some, something about someone dealing with anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts. And, you know, for a time I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting if the entire world accepted that people were going through mental health challenges and problems and we could help embrace them. But I think what it's turned into is people don't feel like they have a voice. I mean, especially our age, our our generation feels like they don't even have a voice unless they've had some major trauma happen in their lives. Yeah, it's it's really hard to deal with. Um, Feeling as if you have to almost create a trauma or, or come up with something that you can call traumatic just so that people will listen, whether it's mm-hmm. so that you can get attention or, or even to just feel as if other people can relate to you. Cause that's the other side. Maybe you don't want attention from people, but you just want to feel relational. You want to be able to relate to people and, and feel like they can have something to talk with you about and you not feel perfect or as if you're above everything. So it's almost, we've almost gotten to the point of glorifying trauma. I mean, I can remember back to the first time I went on a mission trip. We were in Honduras. I mean, you know this. We were sitting sitting around a table. This was back when I was 12 was my first trip. And I remember there we were having this conversation as a group about the impact of a lack of forgiveness, like not forgiving ourselves or people around us for past trauma or bad things that had happened in our lives or in our childhoods. 
And I remember thinking at 12, I don't really have anything in my past that could be considered traumatic. So am I missing out? Like, am am I not going to be relatable to people that I want to help because I haven't had trauma in my life? And because I grew up in a, you know, on the vast range of percentages of, you know, good households versus bad households, I was certainly on the upper side. I mean, I had two parents and I had siblings and we weren't poor. And so I found myself, that was kind of the beginning of my journey of finding myself to be incapable or so I thought incapable of relating to people because I had not experienced trauma. And so this is really, this is really vulnerable, but I've essentially come to a point where I have to self-create trauma because I simply want to identify with people around me and with people online. And that's really dangerous. If, if I, I, I'm not going to, you know, pat myself on the back here, but I, I'm not in the dumber end of the population. And I experience that, ex- even as an intelligent person, experience an extreme need to associate myself with either um, traumatic experiences or self-sabotage my, you know, myself to the point where I can so-called relate to people. Mm-hmm. So how do you think this this started? Where do you think it came from? Well, I I think, well, for me, it came from church community first. And then second, it was definitely proliferated by social media. And then thirdly, therapy culture. I, I think that's the only way to term it is like a, a need for, ther- for therapy or for therapists. Um, what, I mean, what do you think? I don't know. So I've never actually um, been to therapy myself. I've never experienced what I consider to be a traumatic event. So I'm kind of looking at this through a lens of perhaps it's a clouded lens because I haven't experienced any of it. But I've always looked at therapy and wondered, well, for one thing, it's one of the few professions where if you get into it, your goal as a therapist is to make yourself not needed. And there are very few professions that that's the case. If you're a doctor, you want your patient coming back to stay well. But if you're a therapist and your patient is coming back to you to stay mentally well, then you're not actually helping them understand how to work through their own challenges. So contrasting to many professions, you're almost trying to to remove yourself from the equation from the very first time. And that's a really interesting place to be. And it makes me wonder, are there therapists who are not treating it that way? Is a lot of therapy culture created from people seeking the uh, the recognition of having trauma? Or is it coming equally from the side of therapists as well? I Well... Looking at society and social media, I absolutely think it could be a combination of all of those things. I mean, I'm I'm not going to say without looking at research that there's a bunch of therapists out there who are simply using this trend to monetize their profession and and grow it per se, but I certainly think that's a possibility. I think that there is a lot of truth to what you just said, which honestly, this is, this is so stupid of me, but 
until recently, because I guess of this therapy culture that I've grown up in, and you're you're a little older, so maybe you escaped it, but I I literally, when I think of the word therapy or therapist, the purpose of a therapist in my mind is almost like a guidance counselor or a mentor, or it's almost like a, a vitamin instead of an antibiotic. Like in my head, the a therapist is associated with something you take as preventative care rather than something that you use or a program that you use when you've undergone something that is harmful to your body or your mind. And then you need, say, six months of, of a program to help you get out of that, to, to build better patterns that you can then remove yourself from the therapist. And you reminded me this morning, that is not, that's not what therapy is. Therapy is meant to, it's meant to be a means to an end, right? It's meant to actually, your therapist is supposed to help you exit from using them because that's how, that, that's an indicator that you have a better, a better relationship with your own mental health and your ability to navigate life is, is better, right? Yeah. And I, I hear this very frequently in that people attending therapy say something along the lines of, I need a, a third party who is objective and who can just tell me I'm not crazy. And I think to myself, how long have you been seeing this therapist? If you're going on over a year, two years, five years with a therapist, and you still need that person to convince you that you're not crazy, is there a better way? Is there is there a different way to... Are, are you with the wrong therapist, perhaps? Because the the point is to make sure that you can understand that you're not crazy and that that feeling can come from you. That's, that's part of the goal. It's, it's almost like in modern day society, specifically with our generation and probably a good portion of millennials too, but definitely with Gen Z being the most depressed and anxious generation, it's almost like we've come to rely on therapists instead of trusted friends, because we have this tendency toward loneliness. Yeah, you mentioned something about a loneliness epidemic. Yeah. What do, what do you mean? I mean, it, a couple years ago, when COVID first started happening, I mean, I actually, one of our guests who's coming up on the show, her name is Deb, and she mentions in the episode the idea of the shadow pandemic. So there, many experts are saying, um, I believe the, the APA says this and several other mental health organizations, they're saying that the shadow pandemic is going to hit in 2024. And it's basically, they make the claim that there will be more deaths from suicide or loneliness as a result of COVID than the actual pandemic itself. And and this is certainly that's that's making a global statement but my my statement about the epidemic of loneliness i truly think that's more centralized to you know i can't speak for every country but first world countries where we're not in the midst of poverty or war or you know we don't have such unstable conditions that we're unable to you know reposition our focus so i think 
I don't know the numbers around this, but I truly think we have an epidemic of loneliness where the isolation created by not just COVID, but also social media is causing our generation to take the easy way out. Like we're, we're, we're opting out of friendship and into social media. So how does, how does social media, if you're surrounded by people, um, how does that result in your being lonely? How does that, how does that drive you there? How does it for you? I know what it does for me. <laughs> well, I, um, my forays into social media are limited to about 10 Your minutes forays. of Instagram every day. <laughs> yeah. Boomer. <laughs> yeah, of course. And, uh, a little LinkedIn. I don't have a Facebook. I used to have a deviant art, uh, not anymore. And I just don't spend much time on social media. I wake up in the morning, read a little of the New York Times and a few other news sources, and then move on with my day. And I just don't, I don't find it to be something that I'm drawn to. Well, no, a lot of Gen Z is doing that too. They're just simply saying, well, fuck that. I'm not, I'm not going to deal with social media and the hate and the cyberbullying and all that. So they've opted out. Um, I, of course, am more active on social media and I think for me and watching other people our age engage on social media, it's it's just simply easier to spend, say, 30 minutes or an hour scrolling through TikTok videos than it is to get on FaceTime with a friend and, re and, and catch up. I mean, I, you know as well as I do, I am terrible about maintaining relationships that are not in person or have a consistent, you know, schedule for FaceTiming or at least phone calls or something like that. And because Gen Z's communication strategy, in a sense, is not just conversation. In fact, conversations much lower on the totem pole than even DMing someone or commenting on a social media post the the easy way out and, and it's almost like we're creating false friendships or false engagement and i'm a huge proponent of social media and connectedness and i talk about that all the time on the show so this is an interesting kind of pivot because there is a there's a dark side to the lack of true engagement gotcha that's that's really kind of scary um yeah. And I'm curious, too, how the dots are connected between social media bringing loneliness, but how when you get involved in social media, but then you try to get out of the loneliness, what that drives you to do. And I think that that's part of the root for trauma culture, therapy culture, however you want to term it, um, looking for traumas so that you can, you can gain your recognition. Do you think that comes from the loneliness? Is that people trying to, is it people trying to escape the loneliness while staying on social media? Or do you think that has anything to do with it? So hold on. What do you mean by taking the trauma or using it for attention? Like dissect that more. Sure. So if, if we establish or, or decide that social media is pushing people towards some form of loneliness because it's maybe easier than connecting with friends personally or connecting with mentors. So we browse social media more than actually engaging with friends. And that brings us to loneliness. 
but then we want to escape the loneliness while staying on those social media platforms. And do you think that's what's driving people towards these unhealthy uh, tendencies towards trying to find, create, or establish traumas so that so that they can relate? Is that coming from the loneliness, or is it completely separate? Honestly, I think it's a completely cyclical dog eats dog sort of cycle because I don't think one causes the other. So to give an example, I came across a video on TikTok earlier today that had over 13 million likes. That's a really, really popular video. And it was a video of a girl who I'm assuming had been in bed with depression for months because her hair was completely knotted. The video was her literally just brushing out her hair. And, and, and the caption was, I did one thing today to basically show that I'm still hanging in there. And she's like 15. And, and people in the comments section were, you know, saying things like, I'm there with you right now. I'm also, you know, experiencing the same sort of thing, you know, depression, anxiety, and then there were people in the comments trying to be encouraging, but what it really pointed out for me, because there's thousands of these types of videos online, is I don't know that there is a distinction in our generation between real mental illness and perceived mental illness. And I mean, again, to, to be very vulnerable here about myself, I have absolutely struggled with low points in my life, and I still do on almost a monthly basis. Maybe you would know better than me, probably weekly basis. And I, I've dealt with being suicidal before. Um, and what I know is part of the, the recovery process from those moments is being vulnerable with close, trusted friends about what I'm going through and sharing that. And that processing is extremely healthy. What's not healthy is for me to go on social media and see millions and millions of other people and tens or dozens of videos of other people struggling with the same sorts of issues. Because instead of it helping me feel like there's a community and that other people are struggling, it makes me feel like I have to prolong my condition in order to relate to them. And that's a re of course, I'm just speaking for myself. I don't know that everybody experiences that, but I think it's more widespread than we think. It's like, I know I don't have a severe mental condition or, or inclination toward depression, or I'm not diagnosed. And there are certainly people who are, I have several friends who really are clinically diagnosed with some major challenges. But I, I see the problem and what's kind of feeding into this cycle is if you struggle with even a hint of, of depression or anxiety or suicidality, whatever that case might be, at one point in your life, it's almost like your views online where a lot of our generation gets our worth from we have to relate back to those stories and keep bringing up those terrible moments in our life. And it is a call for attention. So I really do think they're just 
feeding each other in this endless cycle of, you know, I have to relate to that person. So I have to reflect back on my experience, which then sends me back into a negative place in my life. And there's not an escape from it. That's really interesting to think of social media as a, as a large feedback loop. Um, I'm kind of curious how many, how many situations, how many topics on social media do you see doing the same thing in a positive direction? Cause I feel like they're there as well, but maybe it's just pushing us towards very antipodal sides of, of, uh, the human existence. 100% actually that brings up an interesting thought that I had the other day, other day. So, okay. Mr. Beast, right? There's people like Mr. Beast and people like, I forget the name of the guy, but there's this guy who goes around to Central and Latin American communities, and he is essentially raising money on TikTok to build people, the people in Mexico and Nicaragua and Guatemala, new houses. So, and start businesses, like help fund them starting businesses. And of course, they've got millions and millions of views and people sponsoring and donating and all of these things. Well, I find after watching those types of videos, my immediate inclination is what can I do to give and support people? And and, and social media, the, the fact that I watched that 60 second video is what drove me to thinking that specific day at that moment, what am I doing to serve people? So there is certainly another side of this too. And I, and, and you see a lot of our generation as well, seeing that type of video and saying, how can I also build a platform to help serve people and help people? W- would you say that's an example? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, it's nice to, to realize that there is a positive side to this coin because um, it's not fun to watch an entire generation sit around and watch the same videos, the same content and continue pushing each other further down, it's nice to see that they're pushing each other further up as well. Oh, that's 100% happening. I'm just afraid, and again, I don't have the numbers around this, but I'm afraid that the negative side is impacting. I mean, when it leads to the impact of, say, a suicide, that is incredibly hard to deal with. And it's, it's, it's almost like the more we do talk about anxiety and depression and mental health, the more our suicide rates go up, which you would, it's kind of, that's kind of counterintuitive to what you would think, because what, what the entire culture around mental health is telling us, mental health and therapy is telling us is if you talk about things more then, and you get them out in the open, then the problem will not uh, prolong itself so much or it won't fester. But we're actually seeing people choose to take an easy way out, quote unquote, um, when, they, when, when it's very common knowledge or common conversation to talk about our suicidal thoughts. You know, I, I think both of those are correct. I think that if you do let a problem sit without recognizing it, without maybe talking about it with, with friends, with a therapist, with, with someone, then it does take hold of you and that's dangerous. But I think that when people go to social media in order to air these, these pains and troubles and, and everything, 
um, I, I think that they end up in a situation where instead of actually seeking support, instead of seeking to get better, they they come to like, and I don't want to call it attention because it's not attention seeking. It's support seeking. It's comfort seeking. So many people commenting, we love you. We're, we're there with you. It, it becomes kind of its own little blanket that it seems people can't live without. And they keep looking for more of those blankets. And I don't know necessarily how to draw the line or if there is a line that you can draw between. How do you support someone, but also try to lift them out of what they're in, not supporting them in being sad, in being depressed, in being anything or or being troubled in any way, but support them in leaving that. And that seems to be a very difficult line to draw. So if we're trying to help someone get out of that mental headspace and not repeat that cycle over and over of whether it's trying to gain attention or simply existing in a terrible mental place, what what, what should we be thinking about in how we help friends or how therapists should also help their clients? Like try, try to get out of therapy instead of staying in it almost like a little treatment plan that's never ending. Well, I think one of the points of therapy is that you're trying to build a toolbox for for your patient. You're trying to give them ways to to avoid feeling responsible for the trauma, all the other things that people feel around trauma. And I think one of those tools that has really helped friends that I know is um is healthy boundary settings. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm thinking about a specific friend right now who has dealt with abuse from her family, like significant emotional abuse in her family. And she's just now in her 20s realizing how much it deeply affected her. And so she's been going to therapy, but it has been for multiple years. And, and that makes me question some of the efficacy, right? Because... So, so what, like, what do you think would be a healthier approach to that boundary setting if the therapist was truly doing her job of helping the client exit from, from the therapy? Well, I think that one, uh, one approach is to help, to help your patient recognize when you are responsible for something. And when you're not responsible for it. And that's kind of what boundaries are boiled down. It's recognizing I'm responsible to this point. And then past that, that's on everyone else. That's on everyone else to get their shit together. And not make me feel like I'm responsible. And I think I know the friend that you're talking about. And if I remember correctly, there was a lot of responsibility placed by specifically the father on this friend mm-hmm. for the father's emotions for the father's anger uh, issues. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, anything that the father experienced, the responsibility of that was placed on the child and those feelings of responsibility have not gone away. 
and I, I'm not sure necessarily how to how to help set those boundaries, how to help build those boundaries, but that's certainly a step in in leaving the situation and in gaining control over it yourself. Mm-hmm. So I guess what you're almost saying even if we're not, obviously, we're not therapists ourselves. We don't know what those treatment plans could look like and how they differ from person to person and whatnot. But what seems to be clear is that if someone is going to therapy to deal with continual day-to-day situations that should have been resolved through healthy boundary setting so that the same situation didn't occur again. If this, if that person's continuing to go back to the therapist just to process something that they could process with a, a trusted friend, a, a mentor, someone from the community, then therapy has a completely different meaning, right? Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, an illustration that uh, this is actually from the book Boundaries by um, Dr. Clouden Townsend uh, is the boulder and the rock. And the idea is when you have a boulder, a problem that is so big that you can't handle it yourself, that is what your community, whether it's your friends, your close friends, your family, your therapist, that is what those people are there for. It's to help you shoulder the load of a boulder that you can't carry by yourself. But I see a problem when therapists seemingly invite the sharing of the rocks, a few loads of gravel that you have to carry every day, problems that that come along just as part of living as a person. And instead of building boundaries that help you offload that it seems as if therapists, whether or not to prolong their own job, (laughs) (laughs) seems to be, in in some cases at least, uh, seem to just invite bringing that same load of gravel back every week, every month, every year. And when there's no progression there, it seems as if there's a little profit chasing there. And Mm kind of not something I like to see necessarily. Well, there's multiple apps now for mental health. It's, you know, (laughs) I forget the name of them, but they're being advertised all over Instagram and TikTok where you can go pay, you know, five bucks a session to get mental health therapy. Mm -hmm. And 10 bucks a session to get some medications. Yeah. It's just so medication driven, therapy driven instead of, I mean, I would assume from the people I know who've used those apps it's the same as if you could call a friend and talk through something. And that's, it's what I guess the root of this problem is literally that therapy is now is the new substitute for lack of deep friendship. Yeah. And you said it's the same as calling a friend, but it, it really isn't because no matter what, when you, when you have a therapist, you have some level of objectivity, but you also lose a level of context. Absolutely. If someone's looking in from the outside, then yeah, sure, they can tell you, oh, that's obviously wrong. Whoever should not have done that to you, that is wrong. And sometimes that's easy to see from the outside, but they also lose the context. What if the context there is, this has been the exact same thing for three years? Well, 
the the answer is still the same. You you have to find ways to leave that. You have to find ways ways to get around it. Like a but, bad relationship. Yeah. Yeah, and someone who is coming in from the outside is not going to have a full understanding of that. It's your responsibility, of course, to to fill in as much of that context, but it's still not going to approach a good friendship. 100%. Or or a mentor you know, someone older than you trying to help you see the world differently, whatever the case might be. Well, and it it almost is like our generation has lost so much resilience that we find those small rocks, to use the illustration from Boundaries, the small rocks or the gravel that we encounter every day, we have to turn into this giant issue so that we can seek therapy, so that we're doing therapy just like all of our friends. Yep. Yep. Exactly. And, uh, to go back to the article that I was reading this morning, um, I believe one of the things that was mentioned was we are as a society coming up with new words or we're not coming up with the words, but we're redefining them so that we can have words to describe things that have simply existed throughout all of time. One of those was instead of simply calling someone a liar, we now have to say gaslighter because somehow it's stronger. I mean, when I was growing up, you call someone a liar, they might punch you. You sound if like they're you're not. so old. <laughs> you're 25. I know, I know. <laughs> no, but, but gaslighting, is, it's a pretty recent concept. Yeah, it, or it, it really is. I mean, I, I, if someone lies to one of my friends and then tells them things that are not true just so that they can get, whether it's romantic attention or any sort of attention, I am not exactly going to take that too kindly. But instead of simply looking at a problem as a problem, we're giving them new names, whether it's gaslighter or other other terms. And they're all kind of pervading this whole therapy culture of we have to define all of these different human characteristics. And they're all bad. They've all existed throughout all time, but it's as if simply being bad and something we know you shouldn't lie. We know you shouldn't manipulate people. Instead of simply coming down on those topics, we give them names so that instead of simply decrying their evil and their their badness, we want to... Glorify them. Yeah, glorify it and, and... give them an even higher pedestal in our own lives. I almost, to even think about possible solutions here, I almost feel like in that particular example that we should we should take the approach that, say, for example, um, we do when there's a school shooting of not naming the shooter's name because it gives it gives more power, a higher pedestal or glorification to the people who do bad things or who, who conduct evil. Like, I completely agree. We shouldn't be taking these terms, branding them in a sense, proliferating them across social media, and then expecting 10-year-olds to be able to decide what's right and wrong. Like, that's our responsibility. And of the older generation, older Gen Zers, but also freaking everybody else, you know, everyone else who uses social media. We, we need to have, when people say we need to have better conversations around mental health, 
I 100% agree, but a better conversation does not mean branding or terming something in a manner that makes it more sensational and then puts it up on this pedestal. So maybe having a better conversation around mental health is, hey, reach out to one person you think might be lonely right now and ask, how are you doing really? Don't go post a video necessarily on social media about your mental health crisis and and that could possibly catch someone else in their most vulnerable state and cause them to slide further. Instead, reach out to one or two people that you think might be lonely. Because if everybody, I mean, we talk about this all the time. If every family would simply would simply uh, be act a, family, a family, act as a family, and, or act as a, a community. Then we, then if every single family did that, we wouldn't have to support these uh, these you know children who don't have a family structure. You know, like even if whatever your family looks like, whether it's a two parent household or one parent household or a combination of grandma and a single mom, like whatever that family structure looks like support each other and your very close friend circle and we won't have nearly as many of these issues. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to go back to something because I thought it was very interesting. I have never thought about it this way. We talk about bringing out uh, mental health issues into the light and naming them so that they can't affect us anymore. Yet at the same time, we do say that about school shooters or, or other people who do, whether it's serial killers or, or mm-hmm. others of the sort, we say, don't, don't talk about them talk by about name, them. especially. Don't, don't sensationalize their acts. Don't put it all over television because that gives it more power. And it makes me think that both are probably not right. We need to end up most likely somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, you, if you don't know about something, if you don't talk about it, if you don't bring it up, then there's no way to deal with it. But if all you do is name it names and then talk about it and all of your friends talk about the same thing and, and we just talk about all of those names, lots of talking, lots of talking, then you never actually, you never move forward. You never find a solution. You never make progress. And yeah, I mean, I'm a testament to that too. It's some, sometimes for me, the most helpful thing in the world when I'm going through a time of depression or a time of suicidality, like any of those things, sometimes the most helpful thing is not to talk about it or be in a community of sufferers. The most helpful thing is to be around people I know and trust and who are going to just sit there with me in, in that crisis, in that moment, and just say, you know what, this, this too shall pass, <laughs> you know, this, l- let's just be here for you. Like, that's the most helpful thing. And I do think our entire generation could use parents and educators And even leaders, like this is a workplace thing too, who recognize suffering and and what is going on in someone's life, but get to know them to a point where you can say to them in a trustworthy manner, like say, "I'm, I'm just here. Like I'm here if you need me. And that person feels comfortable enough at the right time to reciprocate. 
and say, you know what? I do need you. Like I need, I need to talk. Um, and that would be so much better than this branded proliferation of, of mental, mental crises, you know? Yeah. And the need to have them. Well, I had no idea where this conversation would go. But. Yeah, no, and and I want to come back to back to what you said about how do we support it. Um, I just want to echo: reach out to someone. Yeah. Last night I was at an event, and one of the speakers said, "You're never a burden to someone if you're reaching out to see how they're doing," and that seems like a complete no-brainer. Something that all of us should know, but. At the same time, a lot of us do feel like a burden sometimes when reaching out to someone. Maybe you've reached out 10 times and that person never responds. But you're not a burden if you're caring. And, And no one can consider you a burden. Thanks for listening to the Native Digital, Native Analog Show. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe, leave a rating and review, and tell your friends. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.